Many, many thanks to Abigail and everyone else who has organized this and to all, everybody who spoke yesterday and will speak later and to Watterson Manor it's, uh, House itself. I learned a tremendous amount yesterday um, and I'm sure I will continue to this afternoon so I feel um, very lucky and spoiled. Um, and I'm also very pleased by Abigail's introduction, although um, as I wrote her when she wrote to me asking if I would do this, um, although I've spent a lot of my life thinking about homes and houses and a lot thinking about Jewish homes and houses, I actually hadn't thought a lot about the country house per se uh, as a thing uh, until Abigail asked me to do this. And I thought, okay, um, I will, um, I will set two and uh, thinking about the country house uh, as the country house and uh, was uh, delighted to discover um, what an extraordinary object it is as well as what a deep and rich field of scholarship and museumography uh, is surrounds it. So um, that said, I'll dive in and this, this talk is, um, well, we'll see what you think of it. I, will, I look forward to your, I look forward to your um, questions and comments at the end of all, of all species. Um, so among their many fascinations, the feature of country houses that became most intriguing to me is that the paradoxes that characterized European bourgeois and elite domesticity during the long 19th century were exaggerated, even to the point of caricature there. Appearing to be refuges from the tra travails of capitalism, the homes of the well-to-do were crucial sites for business and other deal-making. They were furthermore themselves workplaces for the large staffs that kept them warm and clean and their inhabitants fed and clothed. The wives, sisters, and mothers uh, of their daughters, of their owners, who ostensibly did not have the wit or the strength to work or vote, managed. These employees ordered supplies, decided on menus and outfits of appropriate opulence for each occasion, and worked long to assure the invisibility of that labor. Those same women were assiduous sociologists, tracking who could be helpful to their family fortunes and how. They carefully curated dinner parties, teas, and at homes to assure that those who needed to be there were, and those who should not, were not. They also, to a large extent, managed the household's presence in the homes of others, accepting some invitations and refusing others. Bourgeois and elite homes were then anything but havens from a heartless world, but they were also places where people loved, argued, played, and relaxed. They were all simultaneously public and private, places of work and leisure, of calculation and spontaneity. All of these qualities pushed to an extreme, characterized country houses. Country houses, so moving up, so everything I've just described was, was simply bourgeois. Country houses, and now we're in this place. So country houses were to be showcases for the family's wealth, taste, and power. An equally essential attribute, as we've been hearing over the last few days, this is news to no one. An equally at, uh, essential attribute of the country house, however, was that it appeared to be a place devoted to gracious living, leisure, and entertainment. Ideally, it was also supposed to have been held by an aristocratic family for generations, a family tied to the surrounding lands and, its inha and their inhabitants. In fact, of course, many political and commercial deals were brokered in the interstices between tea and dinner, and during the long 19th century, many of the homes had been only recently acquired or were newly built or rebuilt and inhabited by people either with no title or a brand new one, 
or no connection to the region. Um, across Europe, in which I still include Britain, super elite Jews like super non-elite, non, excuse me, super elite Jews like super elite non-Jews bought or built country houses as we've been hearing about. Those a notch down in wealth and power took the waters instead at fashionable spas and participated in the seaside resort boom. And I think it'd be interesting to think actually more in another context about the relationship between those two uh, sites, the country house and the spa and the, and the seaside resort. The term country house then um, is um, obviously not an oxymoron, which somebody suggested it was when I told them what I was working on. I don't need to persuade you of that. But that still leaves unanswered the crucial question of whether there was anything particularly Jewish about country houses owned or built by Jews. At first glance, the answer would seem to be no or not much. Jewish country houses, like the homes that Jews had built on the Norman coast, Karlsbad or Marienbad, seem much like the homes of the other parvenus of comparable wealth. They too were designed to incarnate wealth and power, housing fabulous collections of furniture and paintings, staffed by a small army of indoor and outdoor servants, hosting hunting parties, balls, and dinners to which the right people were invited, and visitors from neighboring estates came. Finally, like others newly acquired in this period, Jewish country houses were virtually always paired with townhouses. Unlike a noble's ancestral rural estate, which could have been in the family's principal and only stable residence, these country houses were inhabited only during the summer and episodically throughout the year. I'd like to suggest, however, that a closer and different kind of look reveals that there was something distinctive about Jewish country houses. That distinctiveness, I think, had four sources. First of all, the conception of the home and of the house in Judaism. Secondly, the role of time in Judaism and its consequences for Jewish uses of place. Thirdly, the prevalence of social and or marital endogamy and anti-Semitism, which are a pair. The, and fourth, the particularly intense transnational connectedness of Jewish super elites. I'll address these in turn, moving in each segment between an abstract discussion and a case study, that of the Wasserman family, before concluding with some thoughts on, um, on directions uh, for research on Jewish country houses that have come to me as I've been thinking about this. So starting with a house home in Judaism. Judaism, both ancient and modern, puts a particular emphasis on the concept of house, home, and the literal dwelling. This is first of all evident linguistically. The Hebrew word beit is used to refer not only to a dwelling, but to public buildings. Houses of study, beit sefer or beit midrash, Houses of, um, houses of prayer, beit knesset or beit tefillah, and houses of justice, beit din. It should, of course, be noted that some of these exist in other languages as well. English also has schoolhouses and courthouses, but no houses of prayer, colloquially. French and German have schoolhäuser and maison d'école, but justice and prayer are carried out in other kinds of buildings, not in houses. Hebrew, therefore, domesticates more public functions than those other languages. In Hebrew, furthermore, the word beit can sometimes have a non-architectural referent. Just to provide two examples, Beit is also the name, of course, of the second letter of the alphabet, the Aleph Beit. And it was also a Talmudic metaphor for women's reproductive organs. And after the destruction of the Second Temple, the nation of Israel was referred to as Beit Yisrael, the House of Israel. Literary scholar Barman argues that it is an exile that the nation is rendered in spatial terms. And that difference serves to suggest a coherence and stability 
at odds with an otherwise transient and unstable sense of their relation with God. I'd like to propose further that the architectural referent for the Jewish people became more important for their very survival at once they became stateless. This can be clarified by reference to the British usage of house when referring to noble or royal lineages. The House of Windsor refers, of course, both to a family and a place. In both British English and, the, and Hebrew, there's a melding of lineage, building, and territory. But just as the House of York would continue as long as there are people to bear the name, even if they were to lose their land and their dwelling, so the House of Israel was understood to survive as long as there were Jews, even if they had no home. Not only do Jews lack a collective home in diaspora, in the sense of a polity over which they had control, for millennia, their existential norm was lack of control over where they could reside, under what conditions, or for how long. Despite that instability, and in part reinforced by it, Jews figured out ways to be at home while not fully at home in the societies in which they lived. They, that, this too is inscribed in language. The Hebrew word bet means both house and home. In English, house refers to a building, while home can reference both a feeling and a physical structure. In other words, one may occupy a house, but one may or may not feel at home in the house in which one resides. Moreover, home often refers to something much larger and more abstract or emotional than a physical dwelling place. One may feel at home or not in a city, a country, or a language. The home-centered nature of much Jewish religious practice both was an ad adaptation to and facilitated this homemaking in places in which one was not fully at home. Much recent historical scholarship on the modern post-ghetto, post-emancipation period has in fact argued that the home was key to the incompleteness of assimilation, to put it one way. Jews past were unmarked in public and lived their Jewishness at home, has been argued by a number of scholars. I think that there's truth to that observation, but agree with many other scholars who argue that neither half of the binary should be overstated. Even, whoops, even bourgeois Jews often didn't pass in public, and Jewish homes were not saturated by their Jewishness. Um, I would also like to suggest that none of the concepts used to think through forms of multiple identifications are fully adequate. The concepts most often mobilized have been Integration, usually used to avoid the term assimilation, because assimilation implies a dissolution of the smaller group in the larger, uh, while integration, rather vaguely, implies the maintenance of some degree of difference or particularity. Syncretism, the simultaneous participation in two or more cultures, in which each remains distinct. Acculturation, the simultaneous participation in two or more cultures that produced one melded culture. In the, in the acculturation model, generally one of the cultures remains dominant. And symbiosis, concepts that imply, a concept that implies a fusion of equal cultural partners. I'll ultimately, by the end of this talk, try to persuade you that a different concept <coughs> to explain modes of self and homemaking that Jews use to navigate between Jewish and non-Jewish worlds and people <coughs> is more useful than any of those and that thinking about homes and particularly country houses is an interesting way of getting at that and it's a useful way of getting at uh, those, uh, those country, what was going on in Jewish country homes. I think in fact that, Jewish country, that Jews were the ideal inhabitants of, culture, of, of country houses. I think Jews were the, were the, were the ur 
country house um, uh, in how builders and, and, um, and inhabitants. So I'm going to hold what the concept is for now, and, and I will to have a little bit of suspense here to keep you warm, and, um, and uh, move on with, with this. So I'm not going to stay at this level of abstraction, and I wanted to, as a promise, talk about uh, the Wassermans a bit to give you an example. Um, the Wassermans were one of um, German Jewry's super elite banking families, although not in the class of the Rothschilds, in one of whose country houses we now sit. From the mid-19th century until 1933, the Wassermans contributed not only numerous bankers, but government advisors, writers, and scientists to German economy, polity, letters, and science. They had settled in Bamberg in the early 19th century, then scattered later in the century, um, with most settling in Berlin. Oskar Wassermann left the family bank and rose to become a director of the Deutsche Bank in Berlin. We seem not to be able to escape from the Deutsche Bank. Uh, this, however, has nothing to do with modernism of the form that we were hearing about yesterday. Uh, I, it's beginning to feel like all of the Deutsche Bank is in this, in this conference. During, um, during the winter, Oskar and his family lived in a series of elegant townhouses um, that uh, in Berlin, so there are and uh, culminating, I'm sorry about the quality of the slide, culminating in the one on the bottom, which was, uh, though barely visible, a very uh, luxurious 36-room house in the Tiergarten uh, in, in, uh, in Berlin. For the summer season, they had a long-term lease. Yes, there we go. Uh, they had a long-term lease on, on this country house, which was called the uh, Schwanenhof. Uh, at Inselstrasse 37 on the Schwanenwetter Insel uh, outside of Berlin. Again, you saw it out of the area on the map yesterday. On this, uh, on this, um, that's another view of the house on, um, just outside of Berlin to the west. That's a floor plan. So you can, it's, it's, I'm kind of tethered here. It's a little island sticking out. I actually, it became a peninsula when the causeway was built, sticking out into the, um, into the lake. That gives you an aerial view. The Schwanenwerder Insel was developed by Friedrich Wilhelm Wessel, who purchased the, land, the island in 1882 with the project of developing it into an exclusive residential community to parallel the Royal Pfauen Insel nearby. By 1914, a dozen properties had been built, mostly Jewish-owned and dominated by bankers, although Bertolt Israel, the um, founder of the department store of the same name, uh, also had a house there, as well as a couple of large manufacturers and doctors. I'll talk more in a moment about Wasserman's um, life on the Schwanenwerder Insel, but because I don't have uh, det as detailed information about that house, particularly about that house when it was occupied by the Wasserman family, I'm going to turn now actually to the Wasserman home about which I do have a great deal of information and which is the basis of my, uh, the analytical uh, project that I've been on to rethink the whole problem of integration, assimilation, et cetera, um, and think through not just um, Jewish models, modes of homemaking, um, but the relationship between Judaism and other cultures in which they made their lives. And I think this will have impact for how we think about Jewish country houses properly uh, said. I should also say this is a uh, house I've worked on and uh, some photo albums that you'll see in a moment that I've worked on for a long time. I've published a piece out of this with which I no longer fully agree. 
So, um, so this is a rethinking of this pub published argument, um, which, which is <coughs> slightly embarrassing, but I figure better admit it than not. Um, and I, the, the concept I came up with there to explain it was kind of okay, but had its weaknesses. Um, so I hope this one is better. Sorry, that's another, just another plan of the... Um, so that was Amy and Emma Wasserman's home in Bamberg. So the, this home that I know quite intimately um, is one that figures in um, a photo album held by the Leo Beckins Archive in New York. The album, which I've dubbed a home portrait, features the Bamberg Villa that you see in front of you that Amy and Emma Wasserman, Oscar's parents, shared from 1884 to 1889 and where Amy considered continued to reside after Emma's death and until his own passing in late 1911. This was their second home in that city, the house in which their younger children were raised and to which Amy's mother came to Shabbat dinner every Friday, a tradition which Amy and Emma's children maintained as adults as often as they could. It was also the place where the Wasserman celebrated the domestic moments of all other Jewish holidays. The house was the extended family's home in the strongest sense of the word for over a quarter century. Let me note that, that because this was the family's only home in the period and, and where it's located, I wouldn't characterize it despite its scale as a country house. I think it's, a, I think it's an urban villa. The, the album put together in 1912 by Amid Wasserman's children following his death offers two terrains for analysis. The album itself uh, and, the, and the home documented in the album. And those are two uh, different and equally important projects. The, the album building was a project and the house making was a project. And, they should, and the, the album needs to not be read simply as a means to get to the house. It's a thing in and of itself. So I'm gonna take you quickly through the whole album so you um, have a sense of it and then I'll come back to um, some of the images. This, uh, this image is not in the album. Whoop. So this is where it opens. This is the first image in the album, which is entirely uncaptioned. So the captions are just mine to give you a sense. As I say, I'll come back. So this, I just want to give you the sense of flipping through it. Okay, so four images in the album are particularly intriguing and puzzling, and it's on those that I'll focus here. So I wanna start with three of the dining room. So that's one, that's two for obviously taken from the other angle, and that's the third. Although the furnishing of the rest of the house, furnishings of the rest of the house are an eclectic cosmopolitan mix of oriental carpets, representational paintings, historicist German and French porcelain, metalwork and furniture, and a few modernist contemporary pieces. The, uh, the, sorry. Um, the dining room is in a homogeneous, back up for a sec, Bavarian rustic style. From the dark, heavy, most likely oak paneling, dining table and chairs, to the pewter tankards and chargers decorating its walls and crowding the sideboard. Let me get you the sideboard. Um, uh, along with the, the style of uh, the choice of style for the stove in the corner, this room consistently, even relentlessly, evokes a Bavarian rural tradition. 
In the next image, we see the Germanness of the room minimized. The pewter now competes with silver in a very different style, and the table is covered with an elegant white lacy tablecloth. Not only has the stylistic regionalism of the room been muffled, but it has become definitively Jewish. To anyone acquainted with the practice, the dining room now appears to have been set for, or dressed rather, for a Passover Seder. Haggadot have been laid out and pillows provided to allow participants to recline as the Haggadah mandates. Each place setting is laid with a silver wine beaker, ready for the obligatory four <laughs> glasses of wine. But if one looks more closely, the Passover Seder interpretation becomes implausible. There isn't a Seder plate, no matzah is visible, and the table is not actually set for a meal. Most saliently, a number of ritual objects associated with other Jewish holidays appear to have snuck into the room. There is, uh, it's, uh, this is an etrog holder, uh, and there are two Havdalah uh, spice boxes, and midway down the table is, a, is another silver etrog case. Um, which is a fairly exotic and very luxurious object um, for the celebration of the holiday of Sukkot. It is as if the room had been equipped with signs indicating that seders and other Jewish celebrations were held there, rather than recording a specific event. The emphatic, almost stereotyped Bavarianess and Germanness has, in other words, been overlaid with an equally emphatic, even exaggerated Jewishness. The fourth puzzling image is this one. A room with a long table, dressed for the harvest festival of Sukkot. Jewish law mandates that the household use the fruits of the har harvest during the week-long holiday. Precise dimensions are given for the hut or the sukkah, and it is required that it be constructed in a way that allows the stars to be seen through the roof. Given the practical difficulties of building such a project in urban Europe, a not uncommon compromise for observant Jews who lacked outdoor space to build a sukkah, or who were afraid of marking themselves as so publicly as Jews, or who simply didn't want to face the rigors of eating outside in a, in a northern European autumn, was to decorate the dining room ceiling uh, as if it were a sukkah. This image would seem to indicate that the Wassermans followed this practice. And yet we know from the memoirs of Emil's daughter, Gutta, that this was generally not the case. The family uh, had, a, had a substantial outdoor stone sukkah equipped with a stove and a removable roof. Given that the holiday fell, fell during the second week of October 1911, when Emile was already ill, he died a month later, it's not implausible that the family decided to celebrate indoors that year and uh, arrange their room accordingly. Finally, you see on the back walls hangings that were almost certainly curtains used for the ark that held the Torah scrolls in the Bamberg Synagogue. Embroidered on the wall hangings in Hebrew is a list of names, including that of Emil and his father, uh, and in some cases a number, most probably indicating a monetary contribution to the synagogue. Odd things for a room that one had decorated for Sukkot. So what can we make of all of this, of these rooms and these images? And most importantly, what can we learn about them, about the larger issue of diasporic homemaking and ultimately Jewish country houses? So let's return to the dining room. The dining room was both where the family ate on a regular basis, the heart of their daily routine, for which it provided a thoroughly and unambiguous Bavarian framing. Both the, but the dining room was also the primary site of the family's domestic Jewish practice. 
Emile and Emma, as I noted, hosted a family dinner every Friday night. They regularly marked the end of, of the Sabbath with a Havdalah ceremony, and they celebrated all the major Jewish holidays at home, as well as at the synagogue. Although other rooms of the house bear marks of Judaism, the, uh, the couple's ketubah hangs, uh, or marriage contract, hangs in their bedroom, and the etagere here um, in the music salon house candlesticks, a spice box, a Megillah scroll, and an etrog holder. The family, but the family's life, the whereas religious life, was largely practiced in the dining room. So there are two levels of question here. First of all, why did the Wassermans choose to break from their usual taste and make their dining room, whoops, let me back up, their dining room so relentlessly Bavarian? And more broadly, why did they combine German cosmopolitan secular space the informal sitting room and secondary bedroom. German cosmopolitan space with a Jewish presence, the bedroom and the music salon, and one that oscillates between extreme Bavarianness and extreme Jewishness, the dining room. And a, a note here uh, in, in parenthesis that some, some might object, some have when I've talked about this part of this, this story, that the, uh, the Wassermans are simply a very wealthy family who followed the taste of their class. Um, and that class position did, of course, shape uh, the parameters of their home, but they also made choices. Um, one of the things about being a super elite is that you can make many choices. Um, and the range of style at their disposition was vast. And so they made choices about how they would be at home. It matters that they broke from the German cosmopolitan norms of their class, and it matters that they did it for their dining room rather than another room. So second question here. Why did the children, so that's a question of how they decorated the choice of, of decoration, the choice of homemaking, literally. And then second question is why did their children dress the room in, with all of the families, the dining room, with all of the family's ritual objects to document it for the memorial home portrait? And how do we explain the album's ordering? The dominant dynamic of this home portrait is the trajectory that one might have taken through the house, as you may have noticed when I scrolled through. Uh, cross the garden, enter the front door, walk through the public rooms, up to the bedrooms, back out to the garage. But Amy's descendants found it necessary to disrupt that spatial logic. The first break is with the second dining room image, when it was dressed for the Passover Seder. The second occurs when the vi viewer is suddenly taken from the second floor back to the first, to the room dressed for Sukkot. A third rupture uh, occurs with the inclusion of a room that's not even in the house, Emil Wasserman's office at the bank, which, in which there is a mezuzah on the entrance to the door of, the, of his office. Each of these ruptures is occasioned by an image that attests to Emil's and the family's Jewish practice. So this, like the question of, the, of style of the dining room, is a more consequential <coughs> issue than might at first meet the eye. At-homeness happens in repeated, fragmentary, fleeting moments, walking in the door, taking off your shoes, perceiving without noticing the light striking a chair, smelling a familiar smell. Photograph albums were and are one of the ways that families sought to immortalize and transmit the quotidian exper experience of being at home. Those albums took their place in the homes of subsequent generations, bringing the old home into the new. The processes of selecting and ordering photographs for an album obliged families to make decisions about what would be remembered and what would be forgotten, as well as to create a narrative. 
neither the choice of pictures nor their captioning or absence of captioning, as in this album, uh, or ordering is ever arbitrary. So none of the concepts that I listed at the beginning of this talk, assimilation, integration, acculturation, or symbiosis, helped me understand this album, or the house for that matter, um, and, uh, or the bigger issues that lay behind these choices, I thought. I was driven to think further and in other terms about the relations to home, space, and time that I saw here and found myself drawn to a solution to these puzzles evoked by a Jewish practice, the Eruv. Uh, a perhaps somewhat counterintuitive move, uh, since I'm going to try to persuade you that thinking through the Eruv is a, is a useful way of thinking about these questions of integration, assimilation, et cetera, et cetera. But in order to talk about the Eruv, we have to start with the Sabbath. So a bit of patience. Uh, the Bible is very clear that after laboring for six days, people were to rest on the seventh day. The importance of that rest was underscored by the twice-repeated statement that those who work on the Sabbath will be put to death. In this context, to rest meant not only to abstain from the mundane activities needed for physical survival and material profit, but active renewal of the soul. That renewal came through prayer and study, but also through joy and human interaction. Thus the prohibition on mourning on the Sabbath and the injunction to have sex with one's spouse. Understanding the pull of the quotidian and the discipline needed for rest, that's really important that it takes discipline to rest, labor was defined very broadly to include among many other activities carrying anything outside the home and even carrying inappropriate <coughs> objects for the Sabbath inside the home. Infants, food, extra clothing, even ritual objects, all had to be left behind as one went out into the world. This conceptualization of labor, which effectively trapped people within their homes, seriously hindered the collective celebration that proper observance of the Sabbath required. The rabbis of late antiquity responded to this conundrum by creating a ritual by which for the period between Friday, uh, Friday sunset to sunset on Saturday, a courtyard and the dwellings that surrounded it would be merged. Since carrying Sabbath appropriate objects at home was permitted, once the walls between homes and the courtyard were symbolically dissolved to extend the boundaries of the home, collective renewal of the body and soul would be possible. Three steps were needed to form an Erev. First of all, all the adjacent Jewish households were to deposit a loaf of bread in one of the houses within the Erev. Secondly, non-Jews had to agree to the formation of the Erev. Thirdly, the, er the entry to the Erev was to be effectively or symbolically closed. And from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, the Erev effectively domesticated public space, making it for the period of the Sabbath both an extension of the home and Jewish. It made a new home space, named after the Hebrew word, to meld, join, or mix. Over time, although the principles of Erev formation, shared bread, agreement among the Jews within it, acceptance of non-Jews, and a physical boundary, remained stable, strategies of Erev building adapted to the context in which Jews found themselves. In the ancient Mediterranean, dwellings grouped around a shared courtyard would be unified by closing off one entryway. Medieval cities uh, organized dwellings differently, but the rabbis reimagined the Udengasa as courtyards, thereby permitting Erev construction. And walls of ghettos created natural boundaries for early modern Erevin. In the post-emancipation period, Erevs came to be delimited 
by, um, uh, by, uh, by a co combination of existing elements of the cityscape supplemented by a single wire with additional supports when needed. This is an example of a contemporary Erev wire. The bound marking the boundary of an Erev. The boundary of the Erev became, in art historian Margaret Olin's words, quote, camouflage and noticeable at the same time. It engages in a discourse of visibility and invisibility and does so in a language of ordinary material things. Whether in the ancient world or in the present, the critical components then of the Erev are, one, the domestication and Judaification of public non-Jewish space, Secondly, that domestication and Judaification is for a particular repeated moment. It's not permanent. Third, the Jewish community boundaries are reinforced through its foundation and use, helps define the community. And four, engagement with non-Jews is required. Those four elements, I think, are a powerful model for Jews' may, uh, modes of making themselves at home in context where they were a minority group. And the concept of Erev is consistent with both the importance given the Beit, the house home in Judaism, but also with, a flex with its flexibility and capacity for symbolic and metaphoric mobilization. I'd like to suggest then that the concept, the conceptualization of house home upon which the Erev depends, as well as its power to make the public private and the national Jewish for the space of the Sabbath is mirrored in Wasserman's and other Jewish diasporic homes, and ultimately, emphatically, in country houses. During the 50 years surrounding the turn of the 20th century, Jewish houses uh, needed, with exceptions, and the Rothschild and some of these uh, particular uh, country houses of truly transnational families differ from this, but in general, even a slight step down. Most, um, most Jewish homes needed to be of their national place. Uh, and uh, there, were, there were marked national domestic styles. In this case, I just gave you that the, the, the Parisian interior on your, on, on your left and the, and the uh, um, Berlin example on your right could not have traded cities under any circumstance. Those are, those are very much homes of their, of their place. But those homes also needed to be Jewish in all of the many meanings of the term. And the same spaces within the home needed to be able to be, uh, to be both, although not necessarily at the same time. In the Wasserman's home, the music salon and the master bedroom were always both. Whereas the dining room, the place of Jewish ritual practice, the bet tefillah within the bet, alternated between the two. Just as the area within the Erev was a secular civic space during the week, the Wasserman's weekday dining room was Bavarian. But at the appointed time, the area within the Erev would turn Jewish as the dining room would in its turn. Both the Erev and the dining room, moreover, bore the residual traces of their former state or of their alternate state. The Erev is there, I think, is a more powerful metaphor with which to think this phenomenon of very complex modes of living Jewishness and non-Jewishness within the home and making those homes inhabit these spaces because it, it embraces the centrality of home and the oscillation of space between Jewish, Jewish space and that of the dominant society. To understand the motivation for these practices, one must recognize that the Jewishness of a family even as wealthy and as well-connected as the Wassermans posed a problem and a threat. 
They might conceive of themselves as unproblematically German citizens of the Jewish faith as a largest German Jewish association of the day was called, but they were still well aware that non-Jewish Germans were not as comfortable as they with that syncretic identification. I argue that the Wassermans decorated the room in such an emphatically Bavarian style, their dining room, in order to compensate for its shifts to Jewishness on, on a regular basis. Their dining room was one complexity of living as a Jew and as, a, and as Bavarian Germans. The reproducing of these images in every extant family album may, um, indicates the importance of this dual representation of the room to the family. The other image, the sukkah, from the Wasserman album may also be best through, explained through another quality of the Arab. It's blurring of the boundaries between the domestic and the public, and it's overlaying of Jewish time on a Christian world. Let me start with the Torah arc curtains on the wall. By their presence, and also because they recalled the family's Torah scroll that they carried, Bamberg had an Eruv, from their home to synagogue on Saturday mornings, the synagogue arc curtains in the room erase the boundary between the bet, the home, and the bet tefillah, the house of prayer or synagogue, between family and the Jewish community. Secondly, this image in the album assured that Emil's death would be remembered in Jewish, not Christian time. This was particularly appropriate since practicing Jews commemorate anniversaries of deaths, and even not very practicing Jews, commemorate anniversaries of deaths, yard sites, according to the rhythms of the Jewish and not the secular Christian calendar. The calendar that governs religious life and often familial and social life as well is different in myriad ways from the Gregorian calendar that marked non-Jewish German time. Months in the Jewish calendar are lunar, whereas years are solar, which means that Jewish holidays fall from year to year on different dates in the Gregorian calendar. Holidays begin and end at sunset, and the weekly day of rest is Saturday, not Sunday. The Jewish Sabbath was a regular German school day and work day in this period, and major holidays often fell during the work week. During the Kaiser Heisch, observant Jews, or even Jews who did not practice, but came from a family wi familiar with ritual, necessarily lived this dual temporality. <laughs> This was often a stressful experience, simply, uh, simply difficult to manage, but also raising fears of anti-Semitic reaction or discrimination at the workplace or in social life. Given the full commitment of most Jews to German state and society, the families um, and um, the incompatibility between these two calendars was a source of tension within families and a significant factor in encouraging many, including some members of the Wasserman family, to abandon regular religious practice. Emil would certainly have felt very strongly about having his yard site celebrated annually on the day he died according to the Jewish calendar, which was 21 Sheshvan, exactly five weeks after the first day of Sukkot, not on the day it happened to fall in 1911, which was on November 12th. Emil's children, mindful both of the patriarch's attachment to Jewish religious practice including the celebration of the holidays and yard sites, and of the weakening of those, of those commitments in their generation, may have sought a means of reminding Emil's grandchildren and great-grandchildren of their obligations. Making the dining room sukkah into a memorial room to be photographed and included first in the, in the memorial album, 
and then in the next one was a means of trying to assure that his descendants would place him his death within the annual Jewish cycle. The Wassermans, like other Jewish diasporic homes, was sometimes Jewish and sometimes national, or Bavarian in this case. Some spaces within it were more one than the other. Some changed identity from one day of the week to another, but they were never stably one thing or another because that's not the home that diasporic Jews needed, wanted, or could have. So now let me return to the specific problematic of Jewish country houses as opposed to simply Jewish homes. I stated at the beginning of the talk that there were four qualities of Jewish life that produced a distinctiveness in Jewish country houses. The conception of the home and the house in Judaism, the role of time and the consequences for place, the prevalence of social and, and or marital endogamy, anti-Semitism, and intense transnational connectedness. I've dwelt at some length on the first two, um, but I'll make some direct links to country houses and then come back to the last two. So I'd like to suggest that diasporic Jews were particularly experienced in and adept at navigating the paradoxes built into the country house form. Jews were used to spaces that sometimes served one purpose, sometimes another, and adept at the erosion of the boundaries between the domestic and the public. They had long been navigating between the public and the private, the political and domestic, the international and the national, the non-Jewish and the Jewish. Uh, which is, as we've been talking for the last day, an essential attribute of country houses. They, appe they appeared to be homes, they were homes, but they were also sites of politics and commerce. They, were they lived in the countryside, but they were part of international networks. Their spaces, that, that their, the, their spaces as a whole and the spaces within that were necessarily doing multiple things at the same time in, in or at different times. Um, so I'd, I would urge that in future, as we continue to work on the Jewish country house, would, I, I think it's crucial that it continue to be comparative with the non-Jewish country house. Um, and all, but also that I think it's important to try to find other kinds of evidence. Um, that evidence like that of the Wasserman home portrait, which allows a snapshot into a house at a particular moment and over time. That is, um, that one look, needs to look for spaces, not only for spaces that shift into Jewishness and out again, but those that shift between uh, other functions. That is, I, I really, I'd like to suggest that Jews were particularly good at mobilizing country houses to their multiple and sometimes contradictory tasks, and that um, trying to, to, to grasp them over, to, over the, even the, the space of a day, the space of a week, the space of a year, as well as over years, will, as opposed to just a cut in time, would, would change our understanding of them. So time and place. There's one quite banal way in which time mattered for, for Jewish, in different ways for Jewish than non-Jewish country homes. As, as I said, the Sabbath starts on sunset on Friday, uh, and that goes some way to explaining why Jewish country homes tend to be located within a few hours in the metropolitan cities where weekday lives were lived. The Norman Coast for Parisians, Wannsee for Berliners, Buckinghamshire for Londoners, all of those allowed observant, those who were observant, whether residents or guests, to work close to a full day on Friday during the three seasons when country houses were, were used and still arrive before the beginning of, the Shab of Shabbat. Although we already know a lot about these dwelling practices, I, I suspect that there is more to be learned about the transformations in the enclaving and location 
of Jewish country houses as the transportation networks changed. And we've already heard about how the railway line extensions uh, uh, changed where people were building and maybe you know, the desire to in fact get more people onto certain rail lines. I think one needs to, I think all of that is crucial, but I think it would be interesting to, put, to, th to, think, to think beyond that to the specifically Jewish agendas at times in, uh, in, transport, in changes in transportation access. Time also mattered in more complex ways as in the Wasserman's Bamberg home. Uh, and as I said, I think this poses challenges for research because, because seizing those ways, the home, or particular room changes, is so complicated. So endogamy. Whether rich or powerful, during the heyday of the modern country house, Jews in the long 19th century tended to socialize and work, as well as sometimes and sometimes not, marry other Jews. This was another factor in the, constant, in the concentration or enclaving of Jewish country houses. Nine of the 15 country properties on Schonenwetter Insel, where Oskar Wasserman summered, were owned by Jews. As I said, of those nine, four worked for the Deutsche Bank. Deauville uh, in France, where the Baron Henri de Rothschild built his country house in 1907, was also a Jewish resort, as was the Austrian spa town of Marienbad. Uh, these enclaves provided both opportunities for networking, but also, at least on the surface, a, a buffer against anti-Semitism. They also, because they were enclaves and not, and not um, isolated communities, they also provided, as again we heard yesterday at length, opportunities and the necessity of interacting with non-Jews. That they were, that, so there's a simultaneity of creating the possibility for a Jewish life, but putting oneself in a situation where interaction with non-Jews was absolutely essential. Both the staff, and it, or the staff who worked in the house, the kind of interactions that Lisa talked about between, with a, if one became mayor of the town, if one became a notable, um, but also the owners of other country houses, but then could also have a, a world among Jews. Um, again, consistent with the metaphor of the Eruv. Um, so um, the enclaves provided both opportunities for networking, all right, but um, more, and I think more could be learned about what might be called the positive networking, visiting among families and coworkers, and, and encounters, productive encounters with non-Jews and negative self-protection and isolation against anti-Semitism. And transnational con connections. I think that the particular density of Jewish super elites transnational connections meant that they were deeply familiar with country house interior and exterior design practices throughout Europe. Again, we've seen lots of evidence for that and this house will give us more. Although, for example, 18th century French furnishings were present in many English country houses in the 19th century, the Rothschilds were particularly committed to that aesthetic and were in a particularly favored position to acquire those goods through their transnational family networks. And the Rothschilds are merely the most dramatic example of that particular uh, case. Uh, so in sum, one could argue that Jewish super elites of the long 19th century were the group best suited to the country house of their period. They were very successfully used these houses to tighten bonds among themselves and to bring, bring, build bridges with the non-Jews, among whom they had political, professional, and social relations. And they worked in the flourishing, expanding, and profitable modern professions that enabled them to meet the house's ever-rising costs. Many old families found themselves having to sell out to Jews and other interlopers whose source of income were the very modern international banks, department stores, and factories that flourished under 19th century capitalism. 
these relative parvenus were still able to pay the staff and heating bills long after many of those who had inherited, uh, rather than purchased their country houses, could no longer afford. They paid for that success, however, arguably. Um, the fate of the Schwanen Verde Insel is ironic, again, like many of the properties we heard about yesterday. The ties that the powerful and wealthy Jews on the island had made with other elites had little strength after 1933. Most sold their houses at a massive loss, and by 1939, the Schwanen Verde Insel had gone from having a majority of Jewish owners to being a favorite site of prominent Nazis, who had acquired a full third of the properties. The Reich School for Brides now made its home next door to where the Wassermans had lived, and Joseph Goebbels, Abbot Spern, and Theodor Moral made homes further down the street. Thank you.